Good morning, or actually afternoon, Fernando. Uh, today is actually Valentine's Day, February 14th, Monday, two o'clock Eastern time, 11 o'clock Pacific time, the day after the Super Bowl Sunday. We're one day behind on our normal retrospective schedule. Uh, so this is another in our series of retrospectives. So again, just for anyone who hasn't seen these before, the job that Fernando and I are, are trying to accomplish here is to look back at the last report that we had and kind of open, uh, peel back the curtains and discuss some of the things that we, uh, that, that we learned as we wrote the last report and kind of just check in on real time what's happening in the markets and test our theories against what's happening in the markets. So last week's report was titled A New Chapter for Markets. And the reason that it's basically a bookend to the report from a couple of weeks before that about cycles compressing. So in that chart or that report, we walked through a couple of things that uh, we think will act as market-based signals and feedback loops to the Fed and impact Fed policy ultimately. And, and that was uh, equity drawdown and credit spreads, high yield credit spreads. And our argument was that <clears throat> it's very rare historically to see it either equity weakness, pronounced equity weakness, um, and then wider to a certain extent, 400 basis points or more of high yield credit spreads and then see the Fed continue hiking. And so in the time um, in between there, we we wanted to really fill out in this report, the other market-based indicators that we've seen impacting Fed policy in our historic studies. And it was timely because what we, we've been, while all this is happening, we're doing this research, we're getting a number of Fed governors like Bullard coming out and, and basically the hawkish sentiment is just ramping. You're now seeing investment banks, Bank of America and other banks call for you know seven hikes, 50 basis point hike at the March meeting is now um, more likely than not according to Fed funds futures markets. And so uh, everything's kind of moving in this direction and you're seeing a clear divide. You have a group of uh, analysts that are saying, look, we're gonna, the Fed's way behind the curve and inflation is such a problem that the Fed's gonna hike you know, seven times, let's say this year, and they need to get to, they need to get Fed funds rates up as quick as possible. Uh, we are in the skeptical camp when it comes to that. Now that we might be proven wrong and we'll be willing to change, but the reason we're skeptical is back to our historic studies in market-based uh, market, market based feedback loops and price points that the Fed will monitor. So we had equity drawdown and credit spreads. And in this report, we wanted to add back in the slope of the yield curve, which has flattened like crazy over the last few weeks and really going back the last few months. <clears throat> and we'll talk more about that. Um, <clears throat> and then break even inflation rate. So based market implied inflation through the tips market and nominal yield market. And so uh, breaking of inflation has also come down less dramatic than what we've seen in the yield curve. So these four things kind of, in our view, form a report card for, is the market giving the Fed the go ahead to keep hiking rates? And in our view, we will take the under on the hawkish um, outlook for the Fed. We don't believe that the, and this is what we argued in this report in the previous one, we do not believe the market is able to uh, handle that kind of a crazy hike cycle, that this market has become asset dependent, asset appreciation has driven consumption, and ultimately, um, 
the, as the Fed starts moving, if they especially move along the path the Hawks are suggesting that this is going to be a tough time for markets. The market's going to you know, make the Fed cry uncle, or at least try to. So that's setting the table for our view. Did, did you see, did I leave anything out or what did you see when we were writing the report that sticks out early on? I think that covers it, those two new indicators. I think the, the yield curve is an especially important one to watch. Uh, we highlighted that they're starting this hike cycle at an incredibly flat level of the yield curve. And then also that the yield curve had been flattening since the start of 2021, um, which is pretty soon after uh, you know, we had the recovery in the market. So like all of last year, the yield curve was flattening kind of acting as it does when the Fed had already started hiking. Uh, so, you know, that goes into the whole, the Fed is very late here and they don't have much to go on the hike cycle. Like they don't have much time left. The market's already acting the way they it would have acted if they had started, right? Yeah. What And so if you're making the, the, the fun kind of, when you make a forecast, you kind of have a forecast, right? But there's also a number of implied bets in markets. And that's something that I think it's always fun to try and watch what your implied bets are. So you, you, you call for a scenario. So it doesn't happen in a vacuum. All these markets are interrelated and reflexivity is everywhere. And so like the, the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone basically is how it goes, right? And so that's, it's fun to think what are you implying in your call? So what are these hawks implying? If you think there are going to be seven hikes in 2022 and the Fed's going to push that, you know, their rates up is to one and three quarters, let's say, by the end of this year and seven out of the meetings are going to have at least a quarter basis point. What are you, what is your implied bet? I think the number one implied bet is that Number one, inflation is so serious and persistent and pernicious, and it's going to push through this year that, you know, the Fed has to act. Number two, you're making a bet that the economy, that the Fed's, I think, behind the curve so much that the economy is going to easily digest these, this change in, in policy, this rapid change in policy from quantitative easing and negative real rates to pushing up the Fed funds rate and maybe even tapering asset purchases or um, tapering the balance sheet, um, selling off the balance sheet. <clears throat> These things are, you know, the economy is so strong, the market's going to handle it. I think those are two implied bets. Um, and the third thing that's interesting is if you make those implied bets, you're also saying something's wrong with the bond market. And I do get into those discussions a lot, that the bond market is, you can't, you can't pay attention to the bond market, you know, flattening yield curve, you know, it's manipulated by the Fed right now. Um, tips market, the Fed's so involved that there's no price signal there. I think that's, those are kind of weak arguments in my view, but those are the implied bets that I see that, that you have to ignore the signals you're getting from the market. The economy is actually super strong and can handle this, this crazy change. And in fact, it's necessary for the Fed to move policy. Um, and that inflation is going to be with us and is persistent enough to, to need this kind of redress from the Fed. Do you see those implied bets? 
Yeah, and I think the other implied bet is that all the volatility in response to the slightest comments by Fed board members or, you know, Jerome Powell are going to fade away. Like right now, people are just like scared because somebody's scheduled to appear on CNBC on Monday at a certain time. And like the market, you know, might sell off in anticipation of that. Uh, that kind of sensitivity to Fed behavior has to fade away if, if they can if they're going to get away with seven hikes this year, it means that they're going to continue to, you know, be hawkish and the, and the markets just won't care anymore. Um, and that includes the bond market because we've seen, you know, comments and um, announcements from the Fed lead to large spikes in, in yields as well that eventually come back down. And there's just a lot of sensitivity. You'd expect much less sensitivity to Fed uh, comments or like interpretations of Fed behavior if they can get if they can indeed get away with seven hikes this year and a super hawkish policy yeah uh, like the beta to the fed has to decrease for for that to happen and it doesn't seem like it's the case if anything people are uh going more to you know what the fed says to markets are reacting more violently to what the fed says um which in the direction that would cause them to have to stop right so yeah Fed beta is a great way of putting it, you know, and I think that's exactly how I picture it. And that's why we say cycles are compressing. It's another way of, when you say a cycle is going to compress, it means that the markets, you know, we, okay, so you, you pump stimulus and liquidity in the system, asset prices are increased, and we read that as inflation. The Fed has to reverse course, but the economy is ultimately, it's way too levered to handle a significant dramatic change in interest rate policy. Um, and that's what I think you're seeing in that is like this Fed beta being so high and just job owning the market has sent the yield curve down uh, to 40 basis points. You know, we're now, like we've, we've highlighted in the report that sub 20 basis points on the yield curve, we've seen 11 hikes uh, all time in our, in, our, in our studies. With an inverted yield curve, we've seen five hikes. So the Fed does hike occasionally into an inverted curve but they've also said in 2016 if you read fed papers like they specifically called out credit spreads and the yield curve as two factors that are great market-based predictors of forward economic growth and i don't think that the bond market has changed enough to change their view that these are important factors so all this goes back to, the, to our basic bet, which is that the Hawks are getting way ahead of themselves. And this doesn't even, this sets aside the idea that I, I'm still skeptical of the permanence of this inflation. You know, yeah. and we, we've talked to a good mutual friend of ours and a well-known guy, Vincent Elliward, who uh, has a totally different view on this. And I've heard actually from clients, they saw his recent podcast on um, Market Huddles, great conversation. So check it out if you are interested in getting a different viewpoint. And I think he's gonna come and join us here in the next week or so for a conversation about this. Maybe we'll we'll just um, have a friendly debate about the, the structural nature or lack thereof of the inflation that we're seeing. So that's the other big bet that, that you're getting here is that inflation is, you know, is, is a, it's a, this is the real deal. This is not a fire drill for inflation. And my honest feeling is that this is kind of an inflation fire drill still. 
Uh, we laid out a bunch of stuff last year when it, in our new world order pub, we had some chart of the week that showed how earnings move differently with the mark with market returns and stock returns in high structural inflationary environments. There are a lot of things in research we've done on this. And uh, I think it'd be great, especially the fact that we are a firm that uses real assets and certain inflation hedges in our strategy. It would be great for us to come out and say, this is the time you need it. This is the structural inflation, the big change that we've all been waiting for as portfolio managers and mass allocators. But I don't think we're there yet. I have to be honest. I just right. don't, I don't see it. I think there's a percent of that structural inflation in the current inflation, but it is not the biggest source of variance, right? Uh, like oil prices from last January up over 100%, right? That I think is a bigger contributor than uh, the monetary policy of the Fed over the last you know, two years uh, to, up to the CPI. Now, it, it's possible that next year we're at seven and a half percent again in January, but I don't see that happening without oil doubling again, right? Because that is probably the biggest source of variance in the CPI. And I, I don't want to downplay you know, the, the potential for inflation to last longer and all of that, but we've done those charts showing oil price changes and CPI, and it's extremely correlated. And I just don't see why we should be so surprised that with oil up over 100%, you know, CPI is at seven and a half. Um, it's, well, and you've done some good work on the car, used car market, which is the ultimately the largest, you know, technically the largest um, driver of the, the CPI prints we're seeing, right? And the, if you look at the, the real-time data you were showing me, it's, it indicates that we're starting to see maybe the first signs of used car prices normalizing or get it coming down here yeah. as the world reverts away from this pandemic state. Just in the past couple of weeks, some of the high frequency data I was looking at was showing the first declines we've had in a long time on used car prices. Uh, and, you know, that's just another piece of it. If you look at, if you sort by, you know, all the CPI components, all the fuel stuff, is towards the top of the list, which makes sense. But it's more than that because, you know, when you look at CPI components, one thing is fuel, but then all the other components, you know, have a piece of that in it, right? It's reflected again in all the, the other uh, categories of CPI. It's like, if you look at the a decomposition of what drives all the CPI components, I'd, uh, I'd strongly assume that fuel is a big part you know, big principal component of the explanation for, for how all those other things are moving. So it's, it's not a surprise to me that, you know, everything's moving in the same direction and people are trying to say, yes, that's because uh, we're seeing the beginnings of a wage price spiral. Um, but I, I mean, maybe, but I think that uh, the base case would just be you're seeing the uh, component in all those different components of CPI that's driven by fuel costs. Um, so that's something that I kind of wanted to yeah. do some work on that. Uh, I think that'll be a good project. We did some work maybe a year ago, and it's probably worth us getting back into it, is on how there was such a skew within CPI components last year. And we were watching that to kind of give us a tell on what was going on in inflation. And I think, uh, just looking at the numbers doing back the envelope math it looked like more than 50 percent of the of the, if of the what i would call excess cpi print is attributable to new and used cars and fuel 
So yeah. these are that this is more than 50% of the CPI that we're seeing. Uh, the, the excess CPI we're seeing above 2% Fed target is that now, like you said, there's nuance in this conversation because we've been pointing out what's going on in the housing market and there are structural problems with inflation, but it's important. You can't, you lose credibility. You know, it becomes a political, in my view, there's a, a political axe to grind here. Um, and you lose credibility if you paint things that are so obviously transitory as you know structural and that's what we're not going to do at 314 i think that we aren't going to fall into that trap i think our our way of handling these kind of real-time inputs is going to prove to be superior to kind of the um ideologues who you know often are kind of cloaked in finance jargon but they're all ultimately there if you if you look close enough you can see a political ideologue there so that won't be something that a mistake that we make. The, the other big thing that I see that's different this time around that is a wild card for all of our analysis is the political class is going hard against inflation instead of usually remember the Trump years, Trump would be like yelling at Powell for being, you know, for for tightening policy. Now you have like Joe Manchin and all the political class just hammering the Fed and saying you need to address inflation, do this, do that. And so to me, that is the recipe for a policy mistake. When you have politicians who don't know anything about economics. And can and, switch easily to another boogeyman next week if they want to. Yeah, <laughs> and the Fed's a perfect, shoot, I love, I love giving the Fed a bunch of crap just like the next guy. Because you know what? The Fed is on a, they, no, they had nothing to do. Like Manchin can point to them when his constituents are upset about like what's going on in their, you know, their day-to-day -day life. And sh for sure there are inflationary policies, you know, the, the stimulus we did, there are no, there's no free lunch. There is an inflationary aspect to that, but to just hammer the Fed and Fed policy, you know, someone said it was a good tweet. Like if, if, um, you know, Fed policy cutting rates hasn't like done anything to inflation. We haven't seen inflation change. Why would raising rates change inflation? It's like interest rate policy and the CPI numbers we're getting are, I would say, are more divorced than they've ever been. Um, and so, yeah, that's a big factor to me is this political pressure that's coming to bear on the, the Fed at this point. Um, and it, it seems to be a different from a different direction than we've had in previous cycles. So that's a big wild card yep so the last part of the report that we had um we looked at really you know given what we're saying the, the future is an uncertain place that's something we always say we don't know how the future is going to turn out we have our theory and we're going to like test it or ultimately go back to our models but the one thing i do know and it was what we said when we started this firm and we believe it today is if this is the structural inflation you know one thing you need to be set up for in advance is the ability to access real assets, alternative assets in your asset allocation mix. And so we kind of highlighted that 2002 to 2008 timeframe where we saw the last secular commodity bull market and how important it was to have commodities available to allocators. So we looked at the RAA and just looked at how much better it did than 60-40. And then we also looked at the percentage of that RAA return that was attributable to commodities and gold. And it was a decent amount. It was, was uh, 
you know, roughly almost 20% of the RAs annual return was attributed to just those two asset classes out of, you know, what at the time was probably 16 or 17 assets. We didn't have Bitcoin back then, obviously. Right. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson. Um, and, you know, it highlights the value of having commodities, which sometimes are, sometimes are a drag, right, um, of having it in your asset allocation. Uh, but the fact that like our RA model is, is tactical, I think makes, makes it a lot easier to justify uh, having that in the strategic menu of assets that you're looking at. Because if, if commodities outperform for you know, two years straight or three years straight, you know, our tactical model is gonna stay in that trend but for as long as it lasts. And you know, uh, sometimes there'll be times where commodities have a short-lived rally where you'll take a hit but having the ability to get into it when it's working and commodities tend to trend. I mean, that's kind of something that they, they, they they're, we talk about a, a historical commodity um, uh, secular bull market. So when that happens, commodities outperform for a long, can outperform for a long period of time. And you wanna have a tactical approach to incorporating them into your mix. Yeah. And having not just commodities, because we've said before, we don't, you don't know how inflation is going to manifest itself in the future. Commodities were a good bet in the past, and these inflationary episodes are during certain time periods. I do believe, and that was another, we'll end it here, but John Arnold had a great, John Arnold, great um, natural gas trader who made himself a billionaire uh, off of trading natural gas and has probably forgotten more about commodity markets than most analysts uh, have ever known. Uh, had a simple but I think important tweet, which is that natural resources are going to be the constraining factor for our global economies over the next decade. And he said, nobody's talking about it. I think there are people talking about it now, but I think the fact that he sees that as a constraining factor, you have to listen when voices like that call that out. That is the recipe in what we're doing, this energy transition. is It's part of the recipe for another commodity bull market. So it's a good bet that that's where inflation shows up, but we want to have our menu open to as many options as possible. And that's ultimately how we build our systems. So um, yeah, so it's a good, it's a fun time to be doing macro. It's a fun time to be doing asset allocation, uh, alternative asset allocation. Um, and hopefully we get one of these inflationistas that we know really well and is kind of known out in the markets to talk to us next week and that we can kind of um, figure out what are where the weaknesses in our arguments are because that's ultimately what we're interested in so yep, should be anyway, fun yeah thank you again for um to all our clients you can uh as always reach me warren at 314research.com fernando at 314research.com we appreciate your business and your time and for uh giving us 25 minutes to, to run down our report thank you